Good to be with all of you this evening. Um, be glad to try to respond to any easy questions. <laughs> That's how they're going to be vetted. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, the two people with mics will... Okay. <laughs> easy. I believe you told a story that in his last lifetime, the Buddha had headaches because he had rejoiced at the flopping of a fish in a way previous lifetime that was going to be his lunch. And what that suggests is that for each transgression, there's a specific penance we have to pay. But it seems hardly possible that we'd ever get out of karmic debt if that's true. What's your understanding of how we resolve our burden of past karma? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cut that one. (laughs) First, uh, there's actually an an important point in the question, which I think is is really worth addressing. Uh, Although I don't particularly remember telling that specific story, but it does illustrate the point. There's often the, the misunderstanding that in order to realize enlightenment or awakening, we have to burn through all our past karma in some way. But as you suggested in the question, that would be impossible because if one believes in you know, the Buddhist cosmology and many lives and past lives, we're all trailing an infinite amount of past karma. So there would be no way to have all of those past actions bear fruit before awakening. So I think that's just a mistaken view. And it really has to do with developing the mind you know, in the balance of mind and the factors of awakening, which I'm sure you've heard about during the retreat, to a place of maturity and balance where the mind opens. It's said that some specific actions will prevent that awakening in this lifetime. They're called the five heinous deeds, if that's how you pronounce the word. You know, and I don't think any of you have hopefully committed them of killing one's mother or father, wounding the Buddha, killing an arhant, causing a schism in the Sangha. Uh, So short of that, even though we may be, uh, we all of us have a mix of, of wholesome and unwholesome karma from the past, none of it will be a barrier, you know, to awakening. So I would just say that's good news. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I don't know if that gets to your question but I, that is an important clarification because I've heard that misunderstanding from many people over the years you know, and it doesn't really make sense
Okay, all the way in the back. Everything that arises is not self. This includes the body and the brain and its qualities and characteristics, memory, um, emotions, motives, intentions, and so on. If everything that arises is not self, in that kind of situation, there can neither be a situation in which there's choice or no choice, a situation in which there's responsibility or no responsibility, and also in such a situation there can't possibly be any karma because there's, it's a situation of not-self and not-self can't have karma. <laughs> so in that kind of situation where there's not-self to be reborn, and as not karma to be reborn, what can possibly be reborn? And if it is reborn, it's not self anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you hear my first instructions? <laughs> so, uh, there was a lot in that question. I'll try to address at least some of it. <coughs> Trying to think of where to begin. First is the understanding that in the teachings of not-self, it's not that we start with the self and then somehow through our practice we get rid of it. It's really to realize that it was never there in the first place. The law of cause and effect of actions bringing about results does not depend on the concept of self. It simply is saying that certain actions are going to bring about certain results depending on the motivation of that action. And so I'm sure you've heard this over these, over these weeks. You know, actions motivated by greed, hatred, delusion will bring about an unwholesome result. And likewise, a wholesome motivation will bring about wholesome result. There's no self involved in any of that. It's simply action and result. Action and result. It's this process of each moment's experience conditioning the next, conditioning the next, conditioning the next. And the way it's described in the Buddhist teachings, death consciousness, the quality of the mind at death, depending on uh, the particular qualities that are present in the mind at death, in the moment of death consciousness, that will condition the rebirth consciousness, or the quality of the ongoing process. 
to talk about selflessness does not mean that the process is unlawful or chaotic or somehow everything just falls apart. The unfolding of our lives and the unfolding of the world are following certain laws of nature, whether they're the scientific laws of chemistry or physics or the psychological laws, the laws of the mind, which the Buddha so brilliantly illuminated for us to see for ourselves. So it's not a question of belief. It's just a question. The Buddha gave teachings. He pointed a way for us to understand this process of cause and effect, cause and effect, moment to moment, and to verify that in our own experience. So just to underscore this, in all of these teachings, there's never a requirement for belief. It's not what this is about. It's all about suggestions for your own investigation, your own understanding. Very often and and conventionally and mostly in our lives until we've really examined this process very deeply, there is the felt sense that the process is happening to someone. You know, and so this is where I think the illusion of the critical importance of the notion of self arises. Because even when we see the impermanence of all the things you mentioned, the bodily sensations and thoughts and feelings and emotions, so even when we have some sense of their impermanence, of their arising and passing due to different causes and conditions, it's an impersonal process, and maybe we get a glimpse of that, and even more than a glimpse in your practice. You know, it's all just a, a passing show. Still, for the most part, and for quite a while, there's a tendency to be identified with the one who's knowing it all. Right? So I'm the one who's seeing the impermanence of all this and even seeing the selfless nature of all those phenomena, but not yet seeing the selfless nature of the knowing, the knowing itself. And I find that this identification with consciousness, identification with knowing, is the last holdout of self. It's where, it's where that last vestige of a sense of self resides in the identification with the knowing which creates the felt sense of a knower, or an observer, or a witnesser. <laughs> so none of the things you describe, none of the processes of our unfolding life, and none of the processes involved in life to life, are in any way dependent on the notion of some unchanging, abiding something or other that is carried through all the changes. So it's not that the changes are happening to someone. Rather, if you want to use the word self, which we do conventionally, and it's totally fine to use it in a conventional way, there's no problem, but to really see what is it that you're referring to when you use that term. 
if you're referring to some sense of an unchanging, abiding, soul-like entity, this is what the Buddha said is not seeing clearly. If you're using the term self to describe the unfolding, changing process of life and the continuity of it and the lawfulness of that unfolding, then it's fine to use that sense of self, the word. Um, Oh. Okay, I can't resist. <laughs> I'm sure many of you know what's coming. <laughs> An example I've been using for the last 50 years. <laughs> the Big Dipper. <laughs> you familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper? You know, in the sky and... You go out at night and it's a clear night and you can see the stars. It's a pretty easy constellation to recognize. Okay, so this, you're coming close to the end of the first six weeks. This is, this, consider this your final exam. <laughs> okay, this, this, everything depends on your answer to this question. Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> There's no Big Dipper. <laughs> Big Dipper is a concept, obviously, which we've created. There's a certain perception of stars in a certain pattern. We perceive the pattern. We put a name on the pattern. We call it Big Dipper. Self is like Big, Dick, Big Dipper. All of the phenomena, just like those stars, create a pattern as we're, as we're looking at the sky. All the phenomena of our life creates a pattern. So when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I can, yeah, that's me. So the pattern is there, but what happens in this situation and in many others, and this would be really interesting to observe carefully, not only in meditation retreats, but in your lives, how often we reify patterns. We make a pattern into a thing. And that's what we do, and that's how the notion of self is created. We've, there is a pattern, a recognizable one, and this, this pattern is different than that pattern. And each one of the patterns is different. But it's a pattern of changing elements. It's not a pattern of any unchanging, unchanging thing at the heart of it. But we reify the pattern into a thing, and then we live in that world. And that's a lot of the problems that we have. If you think that it's an easy thing to let go of seeing through patterns, just as an experiment on a clear night, go out, if you're familiar with the constellation, go out at night and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's really hard you know, to, to just see stars in the sky and not to be collapsing them into separate patterns. Because that's our own overlay. The patterns are not in the, the pattern as a thing is not in the sky. We're perceiving it that way. Uh, 
So if it's that difficult not to see the Big Dipper, it's no wonder you have to spend three months here in order to not see self. <laughs> or maybe many three months. But that, this is where it's going. It's like, it's like seeing through our attachment to the pattern of self. So I hope this covers at least some of what you were asking about. Any women who would like to ask some questions? <laughs> right, the, our mic is coming. It should be a low ball. Um, so, in the beginning of our retreat, the teachers emphasize that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and I am here for three months, as many of us are. And I was curious about any, um, any, I guess, suggestions that you have about refining our practice for the rest of our time here and not coming from a place of striving or panicking that we have, we're halfway done or, um, but just out of mm. honoring. Yeah. yeah. I have suggestions for almost everything. <laughs> Whether they're valuable or not is another question. But in this regard, <coughs> I do have a very specific one which is something I've been working on myself in recent years and has really changed my practice, my understanding of the practice in a pretty significant way. And it was interesting to me that it unfolded after all these years. I've been practicing for 50 years, you know. And, but this is the beauty of the Dharma. It's endlessly rich. You know, it's so vast, and so it's definitely not a question of a three-month retreat. You know, it's a lifetime in many, perhaps in many lifetimes of practice, and it's just a continual exploration and investigation of the nature of this body-mind and how it all works. And, and this has been born out of my own practice over all these years, and just sitting, sitting, and every once in a while on a retreat, oh, you see something in a little bit different way. So this that's long preface to this. <laughs> um, so there is a line in the suttas which happens, which recurs quite frequently. And it's often the line which either will prompt a person's awakening or it will be said as an expression of somebody's awakening. Okay, so I'm going to give you the line. <laughs> this is a big chance. <laughs> I just before I... <laughs> <laughs> Don't be beguiled by its simplicity. Yeah. Because, as I said, people get enlightened listening to this. <laughs> Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. 
whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's not saying some things that arise will pass away. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So what has the nature to arise? Absolutely everything in our experience. Okay, so I was sitting, I was doing a self-retreat. <laughs> and sitting, and just in the process, you know, of just watching the unfolding process. And for some reason, this line came to my mind. But because it came to mind right in the midst of intensive practice, it wasn't so much an, an intellectual remembering. It's as if that teaching, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's like the teaching became part of the process. You know, so it took on much more meaning than just reading it as a philosophic statement of impermanence. So I'm sitting and just in this unfolding process, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And I saw in that moment, with regard to Dharma practice and the most fundamental level, there's nothing to want. Because whatever it is that we're wanting will also pass away. And so that became a little mantra for, there's nothing to want. And in that moment, it's just, yeah, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. There's nothing to want. I could feel the mind drop back from a subtle level of wanting or leaning into the process that I didn't even know was there. You know, I thought I was just in the unfolding, the breath, the sensations, sounds, whatever was occurring. But I'm sure you've had the experience of meditating. And like we're in this moment in order for this moment. You know, we're with the breath in order to get a little more concentrated. Or we're with this sensation in order for it to dissolve. Or there's very often an in order to mind in a very subtle way just in the moment. It, it's as if there's a slight leaning into the process. So this line, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, there's nothing to want, meditatively. Could feel the mind dropping back. And that not wanting is exactly a glimpse of the third noble truth. You know, in, in the Four Noble Truths, there's, there's suffering. In other words, Buddha talked about what's the cause of suffering on, on the most fundamental level. Of course, there are lots of, lots of causes for symptoms, you know, in society and in our lives. But on the most fundamental level of this mind-body process and what keeps us locked in, even imprisoned by it, is craving. We're wanting something, and that keeps us... That's what keeps us locked into this cycle of becoming, with this wanting to become this, wanting to become this. Even dharmically, meditatively, 
you know, this, this craving creeps in. So that realization, even if it's just for a few moments, it's not that, you know, we may realize something in paying attention to this, and it's not necessarily that it's going to be full enlightenment. It may just be a moment's enlightenment, you know, where we see, here, there's nothing to want. Nothing to want is the end of craving, which is precisely the third noble truth. And in that moment, and I'd suggest you play with it, you know, without going crazy, just having fun playing with it, out of it just out of interest and investigation and inquiry. And maybe you will have that experience even for a moment or two, nothing to want. And to be sitting or, or walking at any time, if you actually feel that moment of dropping back from that leaning into, just pay attention or, or take an interest in the quality of the mind that doesn't want. And you will have an experience, again, it may be momentary, but genuine, of a genuine peace. You know, the Buddha in his enlightenment song, after his awakening as Buddha, in the famous quote, O house builder, you have now been seen, you will build no house again, house of self. The end of that whole verse is, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. And the the Buddhist couldn't point more directly to the nature of the free mind. But for years, I had put the end of craving, I had seen that and understood the third noble truth. Okay, in 30 years, and 50 lifetimes, maybe I'll come to the end of craving. So I saw it as a far-off goal, and it was in this situation that I realized, yeah, it's that also, but actually we can touch it and taste it right now. So that's what I would suggest. Just, I think that would reframe your practice. And this is not to say that particular practices that we do to develop concentration and to develop metta, where there is an aspiration for some kind of completion, those, those practices are all absolutely essential. They're essential in a couple of ways of developing the wholesome states of mind, but also essential in creating the foundation or the momentum of practice where things are just rolling on by themselves, which actually allow the mind to realize, to taste there's nothing to want. If our mind is still you know, struggling with being scattered a lot and just lost in thought, it may be harder to actually have the taste of that. Right? So even if we're holding that as the, as the foundation of our practice, we can still be doing and need to do all the other practices. But it's very different. If we have that in mind, then we even do those without that agitation. So just as an example of what not to do, 
one time in Burma, I was, I was doing intensive metta practice. So I'm going to just share with you two completely nutty things that I was doing in my practice. I bet none of you have done anything quite as nutty. <laughs> somehow, <laughs> somehow, I got it into my head that the faster I said the phrases, <laughs> the deeper my practice would go. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so I spent, it wasn't too long, but it was long enough. <laughs> so that's what I was doing. <laughs> Obviously, it was the wrong way to be practicing metta. And another thing that I did, which took a while to see and to let go of, I kept checking. So I'm doing the phrases and not. I got, I got past the, the speed phrases. <laughs> so then, okay, I'm just a little more relaxed and just saying and trying to feel and... But then I got into the habit of, oh, how am I doing? Is the metta developing? Oh, the metta's stronger, the metta's weaker. So it, all, it, it became all about me, <laughs> not, not about the metta that I was trying to extend. So that's another, you know, when we're checking our practice instead of just doing it, that can become a big hindrance. Um, Okay, so there's nothing to want. Realizing that we can do all of the various practices in skillful ways. One last little mantra that has helped me a lot in my practice when I felt like I was stri- the striving was too strong, you know, where, where I could feel the pushing. Uh, it was just a really simple mantra, uh, already aware already aware, or already here. You know, that is not something I had to get. Simply, I just had to come back to being present. And that each time, each time I felt myself struggling, and I would just remind myself, oh, already aware? You could just settle back into that ease. So some combination of all this might be helpful. Yeah, in the back. Hi. So now this question is hard because I'm wanting to know the answer. (laughs) So my mind um, and experience creates conditions. And my question is, how do I change my perception about conditions without aversion and delusion? Just explain a little bit more about what you mean. Uh, what kind of conditions, for example, or perception of conditions? Mm. So, experiences, like, well, I'll just say, like, maybe a physical experience. Mm-hmm. So, we'll say, like, okay, so, like, the condition of MS, multiple sclerosis, it's a condition. Mm-hmm. Um, my experiences 
that I have of the condition and its ability to kind of fluctuate my my ability to function, mm. walk, and all that stuff. Yeah. But it's my perception around it, and it comes with a lot of versions and delusions. Yeah. So how do you you know change? Because it's nothing but just changing your perception mm. around it. Mm. That the condition begins to change and fade or be non-existent because it doesn't exist anyway. But like, how do I do that without aversion and delusion? Yeah. Uh, that's a striking example of something that is happening maybe in less intense ways all the time, you know, with different kinds of conditions. But it's a good example because it points to something uh, striking, you know, impactful. It really has to do, and again, I'm sure you've heard quite a lot about this, is our relationship to the feeling tone of experience and that the reactivity of either the attachment or the aversion is in our habituated response to pleasant and unpleasant. You know, and this goes very deep. That it's not by accident that the Buddha gave so much emphasis on becoming mindful of these feeling tones because it just seems the most normal thing in the world to want what's pleasant and to avoid what's unpleasant. You know, it's just, you can go up to anybody in the street and say, do you want what's pleasant? Yeah. <laughs> do you want to avoid what's unpleasant? Yeah. And it just seems, it seems like total common sense. But this is where the Buddha's, you know, his awakening to how the process unfolds and what entangles us in the process was just so brilliant and liberating. He saw that it's precisely that habituated conditioning to pleasant and unpleasant, which keeps us in reactivity to the process. And it keeps us living very defensively, you know, against any unpleasantness and aggressively in terms of, you know, trying to get more pleasant things in our lives. Being here on retreat in the whole practice, and it, this is, it's, it's a practice, and it's a practice, as I said, you know, over a lifetime. When you're experiencing physical sensations that are unpleasant, there could well be a tendency to, you're feeling the sensation, and you're feeling the pain or the unpleasantness of it. And unless the mindfulness is right there, there may well be a reactivity to the unpleasant. I don't like this, or trying to push it away or get rid of it in some way, or contract, you know, sometimes fear arises. All of that is in habituated response to unpleasantness. And then the mind very easily can start creating all kinds of stories about the unpleasantness, about the reactivity, about the disease, about somebody having a disease. You know, so we create a big story of our lives, which at this point is quite distant from the momentary experience of sensation and unpleasantness. You know, the mind has moved along from that bare experience, the bare attention on that. And so our practice is coming back to that you know, coming back to that moment, freeing ourselves from 
the reactivity and from the story. Um, this takes, it takes a lot of practice and it also takes a lot of interest in watching the particular process of your own mind. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. This goes back quite a few years now, maybe 15, 20 years. I was on another self-retreat, a long one, for it was a few months. And something happened. I did something that really damaged my body in a significant way. It was was quite bad. And it was something that I had done voluntarily. You know, just trying to make myself feel better, I did something that actually made it incredibly worse. So for almost a month, my mind, it, it was lost in anguish. Because the, the physical situation was really bad. It was very painful and didn't see any way out. And so my mind you know, went through that whole sequence that I just mentioned and just lost in the story. And the, the words in my mind that kept coming up and was so seductive were, how can I have been so stupid? You know, so there was that self-judgment. You know, here I was going along fine, and then I thought, oh, how can I make things better? You know, kind of the old greedy mind. And it made it infinitely worse. And so the, th- how could I have been so stupid? If I didn't catch that thought, that thought was so seductive, so believable, I would spend the next long half hour, hour, in anguish, you know, and all the thoughts associated with that about what I had done and the judgment about it. It took, it took a couple of weeks of just being carried away again and again and again in that cycle. But at a certain point, I said, Joseph, what is going on here? How am I getting so caught? And then I saw I was getting caught because I wasn't picking up that first thought. How can I have been so stupid? And because that thought was so believable, so seductive, if I was not mindful of it as a thought, I was on that train. So I just got really good. I set the radar out. How can... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I could not give it any airtime. Because if I did, I was gone. But it was amazing. It took a while to figure out what I needed to do to not hop on the train. But once I did, then the whole thing turned around. And the physical, the physical consequences stayed for quite a while, but uh, my mind became so much more at ease right? because I could bring it right back just to the moment sensation, catching the thought, noticing the unpleasantness, catching that first thought and not, not getting lost in it. Uh, so I think that's part of the discovery process.
um, you know, rooted in developing and deepening the capacity, and this is really the capacity of equanimity, it's what equanimity means, where pleasant and unpleasant become equal, where the mind is just not reactive. Pleasant, we experience it as pleasant, and see that, yeah, this is pleasant and it's changing. When painful things come, we experience it as unpleasant without reactivity. Oh, this is unpleasant. That's the equanimous mind. Equanimity is like space, you know, which just holds everything. Space is impartial. So equanimity really means impartiality. We can develop that, and with certain things it's challenging. You know, and so it's like in the example I gave, it took me quite a while to come to that place of equanimity where I wasn't, I wasn't caught up. But it's definitely workable to come to a place of freedom. So I'll just, one last little mantra. If freedom is dependent on conditions, it's not freedom. You know, so if you have the idea that your practice has to be your experience has to be a certain way to be free, you're missing the boat. Because then it's not freedom. Freedom is in the mind that's not wanting, that's not craving, that's non-reactive to the changing, the flow of changing phenomena. It doesn't matter. Okay. This is really the last little mantra. <laughs> well, this, is, this is one of also my favorites. So the Buddha talked about liberation through non-clinging. Now this, that's the essence of the practice. That's what you're practicing. It's not practicing for something. It's practicing the mind that doesn't cling, that doesn't crave. So the mantra is, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Which means you don't have to wait for something not to cling to. Why, why not not cling now? <laughs> To whatever it is that's arising, you know. But as you know, we all know we come to the edges of our comfort zone, and we're okay with this, and we cannot cling to this much. But then we reach a certain edge, and we get all reactive in one way or another. So that's the course of practice. You know, we're at an edge. Okay, can I not cling here? Can I not cling here? You know, we, we each reach our edges of the comfort zone and then relax, and so our capacity gets a little bigger. We reach other edges, we relax, capacity gets bigger. My imagination of the Buddha's mind, and it clearly is my imagination of it, but it's a mind without edges. And a mind without edges is a mind without fear. It's just, it's just openness, and whatever's arising and passing Pleasant, unpleasant, the mind is residing in that, in that spaciousness. Guys can ask some questions too now, after this one. <laughs> You're allowed back in. <laughs> Could you provide some tips and techniques for working with the mind state of fear? Oh, plenty. <laughs> because I work with that a lot. Now, 
of the various afflictive emotions, uh, <laughs> my big alternation was between desire and fear. So I worked a lot with it. It's very related to the last question because the great difficulty with being with fear is that it's very unpleasant. And so it triggers the same conditioned response as all other unpleasant things. So it's, it's the emotional analog. It's analogous to a pain in the knee, which is a physical pain. Fear is an emotional pain. So I was working with this a lot and there was a point in my practice where the fear was just so strong and it was primal, it was completely irrational. It's like, I was, I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. You know, it didn't make any, it was not rational. It didn't make any sense. It was just the primal energy for whatever reason, you know, in my particular conditioning, that's what was coming up. And I was noting it and noting it and noting it <laughs> for years. I mean, this, this was a deeply, deeply rooted pattern. So a few, a few key moments in the process of working with it. One was when I was teaching with my colleague, Sharon Salzberg, we were teaching in Texas. And it was at a time when I was in the midst of all this. We were taking a walk after lunch and I was going on and on about my fear and there's so much fear and I'm such a fearful person and it's going to take 30 years of therapy to <laughs> unwind it all. And, and she turned to me and she just looked at me and she said, Joseph, it's only a mind state. <laughs> and it's something I must have said to other people a million times. <laughs> it's just a mind state. But I was making this whole big story. I was building the superstructure of self on top of a passing emotion. The fear was not always there, it was there sometimes, but because I was so reactive to it and so didn't like it and so didn't want, want it to be there, that I built up this whole story, which of course just solidified it. So that's one thing to pay attention to when it comes up to try to really see it, yeah, this is, it's, it, it's a passing mind state. And whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So that's one. The second major turning point with the fear, I was actually doing, again, on retreat, and I was just doing walking meditation right outside, uh, right, right out here. I don't know if you noticed the plaque. <laughs> Here's where Joseph dealt with his fear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking and walking and noting and then something shifted and again this is after years of you know it coming up at different times and sometimes very strongly something shifted in my mind and the shift was expressed in the thought in my mind if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And in all those years, that was the first moment that I really accepted it. All the time when I thought I was being mindful, 
I was noticing it, I knew it was there, but it was not mindfulness because I was noting it so it would go away. And I didn't realize that because there's a, there's a very common mistaken conflation of two different mind states. That is of the, the mind quality of recognition and mindfulness. And we very often think that if we recognize something, it means we're being mindful of it. So I was rec- I recognized the fear. I knew that that's what it was. And because I recognized it and was noting it, I thought I was being mindful. But recognition and mindfulness are two very different things. Because we can be recognizing things through the filter of wanting, through the filter of aversion, through the filter of delusion, you know, where it's just not being seen clearly. It was that moment outside was the first moment that I was really mindful, which included that aspect of acceptance. It's okay. If it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it's okay became a little mantra that I use a lot in the practice. Whenever you're struggling, so this is, this is another principle that I think is worth remembering. Whenever you're struggling, we'll say in your practice for now, but it could also apply in life and does. When you're struggling, but think, of, think about your experience now on retreat. Struggle means just one thing. It means something is happening that you're not accepting. Because if you were accepting it, you wouldn't be struggling. So struggle then goes from being a problem that you're struggling with to becoming feedback. It's, it's almost like a mindfulness spell. So if you're, if you're in some way struggling in your practice and you realize, oh, this means something is happening that I'm not accepting, so that then can trigger a real inquiry and look, okay, well, what is it? Maybe it's some pain in the body. And maybe it's low-level discomfort in the body. You know, that the mind is, oh, I don't really like this. And you're trying to be with the breath, but, you know, you're struggling with it. Or it could be restlessness. You know, you're feeling very restless. The restlessness is one thing. The struggling with restlessness is another, you know, and so, okay, can I just open to feeling restless? That's what's arising. Or maybe there's a lot of thoughts going through the mind, you know, and here you're trying to be with the breath or be with sensations in the body, but thoughts keep carrying you away and then you get into this sense of struggle. Struggle is simply saying something's going on, you're not accepting a lot of thoughts. How about just sitting back and, oh, lots of thinking. That becomes your note. Lots of thinking. And you're just allowing for that to happen instead of struggling with that happening. Uh, so that goes back to the fear, you know, and just can we just be with it as an unpleasant emotion, which involves bodily sensations and thoughts and, and feeling tone in the mind? It's okay. It's okay here for the rest of my life, it's okay. 
And you know what happens when you have that attitude of, it's okay? It becomes okay. <laughs> and again, even if it's just for a few moments, you know, it's not... But you, it's through this exploration, that, that's why I say, this whole practice is about your own investigation of how the mind creates suffering, of how our minds, you know, we all have our own patterns for it. But that's what's so endlessly interesting about all this. You know, just, you're getting in there and you're developing the tools that allow you to get in there. You know, there's enough stability, enough, enough mindfulness and stillness and acceptance. Oh, yes, it's, yeah, it's this intricate web, each one of us, our own personal conditioning. It's pretty interesting. And it's all going to a place of greater ease. Somebody right behind you, Greg. Um, I have a tendency to have very like seductive daydreams that I love to just live in. And (laughs) I know that I should be mindful, but I don't want to. And so... I have the perfect remedy. Okay. Dr. Goldstein. (laughs) This is something that, it's like I never really practiced this myself because that wasn't so much the the hindrances that my mind went to, but I read about it in the teachings of Mahasi Saida, who's kind of the grandfather of, uh, you know, a lot of our teachers. Um, He once described is part of the practice, and it really surprised me when I read this because it just—it just felt a little out of the box in terms of meditation. But he said, "You can use the noting to note what's happening in the fantasy, so you're not trying to get rid of the fantasy. You're having the fantasy, but you're noting it's just meeting, talking." I'll leave it there. You can. <laughs> but it would be really interesting for you to. <laughs> I don't know what you're laughing about. <laughs> it would be really interesting for you to watch carefully the difference in your experience between those moments when you're really lost in it and just, you know, in it and carried away by it, the difference between that and those moments when you're still aware of the fantasy and it's playing out, but that the mind is actually noting. Because then you you are being mindful of that experience. You know, and I think you would see the huge difference even within the fantasy of whether you're lost in it or mindful of it. Uh, so that way you don't have to get into a conflict of thinking, oh, it shouldn't be here, or how can I get rid of it? You're actually using that you know, as the vehicle for mindfulness. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think the men were cowed. <laughs> Um, could you talk 
talk a little bit about doubt because I feel I have a lot of it, but in some senses it has served me. Um, I think it makes me not buy so much into rituals and big ideas and test everything for myself, which I find is wholesome and beneficial. But in other senses, I feel it kind of separates me and maybe not test my boundaries or get out of my comfort zone maybe sometimes, so not trying things that mm. feel wrong. So first, you know, one of the interesting problems in the transmission of the Dharma in the West is, you know, the teachings were preserved in the Pali language uh, from, from early Buddhism. As it's translated into many languages, but now into English, one of the problems is that English words we use for certain Pali terms the English words can have a variety of meanings. So doubt is one example. Desire is another. You know, desire can, be, can mean greed, you know, or clinging, or that aspect of the mind. It can also mean aspiration. So there can be a really wholesome aspiration for awakening, for compassion, for love. And we, would use, we could use the same word desire. Doubt is the same way. So one kind of doubt which you described is really the doubt of, you could, you could kind of say it's the opposite of dogmatic belief. You know, where you, you don't just believe anything, you're really checking it out and inquiring for yourself and seeing for yourself whether something is true or not. So I see that, and I, the Buddha suggested that. That's actually a very skillful mind state. So that aspect of doubt, I think, is worth cultivating. The doubt that's a hindrance is the doubt of bewilderment. It's not the doubt of that kind of discernment, right? Where the example given, you're at a crossroads and you just don't know which way, should I go this way, should I go this way? And the mind just goes back and forth and back and forth and doesn't go any place. You know, the doubt, the doubt has stopped all uh, forward movement, you, know, you could say. So that's the doubt that has to be seen through and seen as a hindrance and not identified with. Year, years ago, there was a yogi on a three-month retreat who spent the whole three months going back and forth between whether he should be doing metta or vipassana. <laughs> and every single interview and so he'd come in and say, if he were doing Vipassana, oh, I really want to do Metta. I'd say, great, do it. <laughs> Next interview, oh, I think I should be doing Vipassana. <laughs> so it, it was a classic example of doubt. That, that, that's that quality where, where the mind just doesn't land and is, is caught up in that bewilderment. That's the quality of doubt. The problem is the great seduction of doubt. And the, the Buddha, he talked about this as being, of all the hindrances, this is the most dangerous. And for an interesting reason. With all the other hindrances, desire or aversion or restlessness or sleepiness, the mind can still be in the vicinity of the object, 
it may be, you know, through different filters and it may not be, you know, clearly focused, but at least it's in the ballpark. With doubt, we're not even in the ballpark. You know, the mind has just completely removed itself from what's actually happening in the moment and just caught in this seesaw of bewilderment. And that's why it's, it's really worth learning about doubt so we can recognize it, that kind of doubt, recognizing when it comes. The seduction of it is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. And it's very, it's very tricky, you know, because there's this wise sounding voice in the mind. Oh yeah, maybe I should really open my heart. You know, I should, yeah, I'm sure metta would be good. No, but this doesn't really lead to deepening insight. Maybe I should do vipassana. You know, and each one, yeah. It's this, it's this wise sounding voice that seduces us. So you have, to <laughs> you have to catch on to the trick of doubt you know, and see how it comes disguised as wisdom. And then when you can see through that, see through its disguise and recognize doubt and see, it's just a thought. That's all it is. You know, and if you see it as being an empty passing thought in the mind, it's not a problem. The fact that it arises is not a problem. It's the fact of getting seduced and caught up in it that's the problem. Um, yeah, and, and so just like, you know, in the example I used with uh, the anguish and catching that first, you know, how could you, <laughs> catching that seductive thought in the first few words of it, I would pay attention very carefully and specifically the specific form that doubt takes in your mind. So you see it clearly enough so you could write down the sentence, you know, whatever it is. Because as soon as you see clearly, most likely there will not be too many varieties. There'll be maybe a few, a few seductive sentences. But once you see what they are, then you just keep the radar out, and as soon as it comes, oh, that's doubt. You know? So it's very workable, and it's important to work with it, because that hindrance can really, uh, as I say, take one out of the practice. Yeah. Okay, gang. <laughs> could go on for a long time, but um, I could. <laughs> uh, one time with my first teacher, Munindra. He was visiting the States, and we were out in California in someone's home, and people had come to hear his teachings. And he started at two in the afternoon, and people were asking questions. He went till 10 at night. <laughs> I was there, oh, come on, Munindra, <laughs> let's, just, let's just go. <laughs> as long as the people left, you know, people, people were, just fading out until the last person had left. He was still there. So I vowed never to do that. (laughs) 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 So let's sit for just a couple of minutes and let everything dissolve.
Thank you.